We are picking up in our sermon series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and you'll find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. We're looking at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Last Lord's Day, we started a series on Ephesians, and I noted that um, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is the longest run-on sentence you have ever read in your life. It is terrible grammar, and I praise God that Paul wrote it because it is one of the most glorious sentences that has ever been written. It is so full, and it is so rich with the unsearchable riches of Christ and the blessings that we have in him that we are going to divide it up into three sermons. Today will be the first of three sermons that we're going to look at as we consider Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Um, having read the introduction and Paul having already greeted this church that he spent three years with. I I mentioned last Sunday that he started a seminary there. He taught five hours a day um, for three years. And it has been well noted that Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians, he is essentially saying to them, I didn't teach you enough. There is more. There is always more. And I want you to know how much more there is in the Lord Jesus. And so now as he pronounces that doxology to God the Father especially for the blessings that we have in Christ, he writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you grew up in an evangelical church, In the 20th century, it would not have been uncommon to have heard either pastors in broad evangelical churches or members uh, telling you mistakenly that they uh, believe that John Calvin made up the doctrine of election. John Calvin, I'm here to tell you this, you can write it down, John Calvin did not make up the doctrine of election. Um, Before him, Uh, theologians throughout the history of the church have noted the importance of the doctrine of election. They've noted 
um, the richness. They've noted, and we're going to see this this morning, that everything about the grace of God that comes to you in Christ comes freely to you because it is rooted in God's free grace in choosing a people for himself in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Paul is going to set that out. I'm also here to tell you Paul did not make this doctrine up in case you're scheming and trying to find a way to to figure out who made this up other than God. God made up the doctrine of election because God chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. God took the initiation in our salvation and the Lord wants you to know that his grace is so free and so undeserved that the best way he can help you get that is to know that he chose you in Christ merely by grace in order to bless you with every spiritual blessing. I want to read a quote to you from Augustine, the early church theologian, reflecting on Romans 11, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, If it's by grace, then it's not by works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And there is a remnant saved according to the election of grace. Augustine says, What was it then that he chose in us, those who were not good? For they were not chosen because of their goodness, inasmuch as they could not be good without being chosen. Don't miss that. We were not chosen for anything good in us, and we could not be good had we not been chosen. Augustine says, otherwise, grace is no more grace if we maintain the priority of merit. Now, I want to note here before we do look at this in detail that um, Paul is not trying to set out a theological treatise on the doctrine of election. He is trying to burst forth in praise to God, and his heart is more singing than he is writing. B.B. Warfield said, this is better sung than read or written. He is singing God's praises, and he can't help himself but burst forth to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus for every blessing he has given us in Christ. Um, Warfield uh, made this statement. He says, it would almost seem as if Paul's pen had run away with him. Only it is not a matter of the pen, but of the heart. Isn't that interesting? What Paul is saying here, he is pouring out, telling you, listen, this is what you have in Christ. Do you understand all that God has done for you? Now, before we look at this in detail, I also want to note that there is a Trinitarian structure to verses 3 through 14. I don't know if you've ever noticed this verse 3, blessed be the God and Father, And then verse 7, in him, that is the beloved Christ, we have redemption. And then, notice all the way down in verse 13, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that's important because before we look at any of these blessings, we have to understand that every member of the Godhead is at work in your redemption. When God wants to save a people, he initiates from himself and all three members of the Godhead enact together to bring about your redemption. That's amazing. That's amazing. The whole of God says, I will take it upon myself to save my people. And each member says in in the covenant of redemption in eternity, I will play the part that I am going to play in their salvation. The Father is going to choose 
a people for himself in the Son. The Son is going to come and accomplish salvation and purchase a people for himself and blessings for them. And the Spirit is going to seal those blessings. He's going to guarantee them to his people. That's comforting because God is initiating your salvation before you were ever even created. Don't miss that. Don't miss the grandeur of that. Before you were ever created, God initiated in the councils of eternity his, his plan of salvation to save you. That's amazing. I want us to look this morning at three things in verses 3 through 6. We're going to limit ourselves to the work of the Father and the blessing of God the Father this morning. And I want us to consider the election of grace. I want us to consider the sanctification of grace. And I want us to consider the adoption of grace, the election, the sanctification, and the adoption. Well, having uh, poured his heart out in praising God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, Paul now says, uh, he has blessed us in Christ, notice verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, Um, Paul is going to talk about election and predestination. Notice verse 5, he'll say he predestined us. And then notice verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Now, uh, this might be a little bit confusing, but I do not believe election and predestination are the same thing. Predestination is the big category. God determined what he was going to do with his creatures before he ever created the world. He determined their destiny. And then as a subset of that, in, he, in determining that he was going to save a people and give them an everlasting inheritance, he chose them in Christ to belong to him. Um, I may have told you this. I, I've never understood why people hate the doctrine of election so much because if God had not chosen me, and you've maybe heard this, I never would have chosen him. You wouldn't have. Um, it is the most sweet and comforting doctrine. Why? Why have we believed in Christ? Because God the Father gave you to the Son in the councils of eternity and said, my son, I want you to lay down your life for this one and that one. I want them to belong to you. I want them to be your bride. I want to give them to you. When Jesus speaks about believers in the Gospel of John, he almost always talks about those whom you have given me. Think of that. You are a gift from God the Father to God the Son, not because of anything in you, not because of anything lovely. In fact, and and you know this, the only thing that we bring to the table is sin, That's all we contribute to our salvation is sin. And yet God the Father says, I want you to be my love gift to my son. And so he has chosen us in Christ. And just in case there's any question about, well, maybe maybe God looked down the corridor of time and he saw that I was going to make a good choice. And so back here he chose me. That would mean God learns God doesn't learn anything. He doesn't look down and learn. He knows everything. He's infinite. So he doesn't do that. And just in case we, we, we struggle with that, notice this. He says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before he made this world? He was planning your redemption. 
That's amazing. What was the triune God doing? Among the many other things he was doing from all eternity, he was planning our salvation. And he was doing it with perfect wisdom. Now, it's important for us to understand that uh, the scripture doesn't only say that God chose, um, chose a people for himself uh, in the Son. The scripture actually says that God chose the Son to be the Redeemer. I don't know if you know this, Isaiah 42 um, the Lord says about the servant of the Lord Jesus, he says, my elect one. He chose him in the councils of eternity to be the redeemer, and then he chose you in him. And that means, and I pointed this out last week, that the doctrine of union with Christ is the very epicenter of everything because we get everything in union with him. And Paul is going to mention union with Christ 11 times in this section of Scripture, 11 times, in him, in him, in him, in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and that is going to mean that our salvation is absolutely guaranteed because Jesus is the elect Redeemer who is going to accomplish everything that he and the Father agreed to do in eternity. Um, The doctrine of election is meant to give you assurance that what God planned and enacted in time, he is going to bring to fruition. I noted that this passage has the whole plan of salvation from eternity past to eternity future, from choosing a people in Christ before the foundation of the world to giving them the everlasting inheritance in glory. And Paul is setting out everything in between, and it's all in Christ. Um, B.B. Warfield, listen to this. He says, All that comes to man in salvation is of the grace of God alone, a grace prepared of God in eternity past, poured out on us now in the sovereign working of the Spirit, and to abide on us to eternity to come in accordance with his gracious purpose. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, do you understand, Jesus didn't just come to make salvation possible. God is enacting in Christ, in time, what he planned from all eternity. And so the doctrine of election is so vital that we understand it. Um, I noted already that the doctrine of election uh, gives us confidence that God is going to fulfill what he has begun, but it also energizes us in sanctification. Notice what Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, if, if Paul had switched those things, everything I've said to you would not be true. If Paul had said, because you were holy, God chose you, then it would be based on your merit. But, but what Paul is saying is what Augustine noted, that, that God chose us not because we were good, but in order to make us good. So God choosing you in Christ is to energize sanctification. It is to encourage you to pursue holy lives. Um, by the way, when Paul writes the Colossians in chapter 3, and he starts to talk about putting off and putting on, he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones. Put on then as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So, so Paul is rooting the sanctification that believers have in Christ, but he's saying, remember that God chose you so that you would be like him. Um, that's an amazing thought, that God didn't just want to leave us like we were. He chose us in order to conform us to his image. Um, you know, holiness is a difficult concept to explain to people. One theologian has said it is the outshining of all of God's perfection. That, that might be the best definition um, and there are many people that have mistaken notions of holiness. They think holiness is a sort of monastic self-denial, that if I, I don't buy nice things, if I don't have nice things, if I don't watch this kind of movie, if I don't do this, that, that's not holiness. Holiness, in the best way to describe it, is Christ-likeness. If God shows us in Christ, his goal is to make us like Christ. Um, when you think of the fruit of the Spirit, Love and joy and peace. Remember, Jesus says in John 17, my love I give you, my joy, my peace. They belong to him. It's his character. It's his mind. When Paul is trying to solve problems in the church in Philippi, two bickering women, Iodia uh, and Syntyche, he, he says to be of the same mind in the Lord. And in chapter 2, he says, let, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. He made himself of no reputation, humility. Loneliness, meekness, gentleness, compassion. Um, holiness is, is not uh, being able to argue about theology better than other people. Holiness is being conformed to the image of Christ. And Paul is going to emphasize that one of the big projects that God has set out on from all eternity is to make us like Christ in Christ, and because of Christ. Well, I want us to notice and I want us to focus most fully now on the next blessing. I've mentioned the election of grace. I've mentioned the sanctification by grace. And now I want us to consider the adoption of grace. Notice this in, um, in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you, you probably love and cherish, as I do, the doctrine of justification so much because if you know how sinful you are, you love that God has forgiven you all sins and have clothed you with the righteousness of Christ and and I don't think Luther was altogether wrong when, when he said that the doctrine of justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It's the hinge. And yet, I would point out this morning that when the Puritans would go through the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, they would almost uniformly say there is no greater blessing of the Christian life than the blessing of being adopted into the very family of God to be made a son and a daughter of the living God, to be given a right to all the blessings, all the benefits, to be brought into the very house of God, to be treated as a son or daughter. You know, 
That's, that's often very difficult for us to get. It's not an easy doctrine to sink down that how can I, who have been so rebellious against God throughout my life, actually be a son of God? And the answer, you know this, is from John chapter 1, where the Apostle John said about Christ, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. J.I. Packer said our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Listen to this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Think of that. If you want to know how much a person makes of Christianity, find out what he thinks about being a child of God and having God as his father. I was walking in this morning and showing my friend our worship space, and my eyes caught the top of the Lord's Prayer, and I thought, wow, how fitting for me this morning that, that when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he, he doesn't tell us, to cry down, to fall down before God as a despot or some kind of harsh ruler or some, some slave driver. He says, when you pray, say, our Father, our Father. That's, that's what he has become to us in Christ. N- notice that Paul, when he opens this blessing, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, to understand the richness of that, That phrase, you have to understand that what Paul is sort of doing is bringing those covenantal titles of God in the Old Testament into their full redemptive historical significance. Remember, in the Old Testament, God was called the God and Father. I'm sorry, he wasn't called the God and Father. He was called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the covenant Lord. We're currently through the Old Testament. He's the God of Jacob. And then you come to the New Testament, and he is no longer called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Peter will do this in 1 Peter. He wants you to understand that when Christ came, he so fulfilled all things in himself that he has secured the adoption of God's people into the very family of God to be named by the covenant Lord as your father. Um, I don't know what kind of father you had. I do know that many of us, even if we had good fathers, have a, a difficult time sifting through the good and the bad. I know my children will have to do this, of their fathers, of your father. Um, And while we are grateful for the good, we sometimes have a hard time sifting through and and really then grasping that that God is not like the father I know at the dining room table. Remember when Jesus uh, taught about God the Father giving the Holy Spirit, he said, um, he said, if you being evil, He's talking to dads, so that means we're all evil dads. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He's, he's, he's contrasting human fathers and God the Father, and that means that in my relationship, I should run to him. 
as a father. This is why Paul, when he is explaining the blessings that we have in Christ in Galatians, he says that he has poured his spirit out into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's, it's almost the zenith of the blessings of God. Now, I think, if I can say this this morning, that the grace of sanctification and the grace of adoption work in conjunction with one another. Because if you all know, you have children, you see they they bear the family likeness, for good or ill. Um, And when we're brought into the household of God, when we are named as the children of God, um, Paul will say in this letter, in chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Bear the character Um, walk as he would walk. Um, And the more we understand the doctrine of adoption, the more we want to bear that character, the more we want to be like him, and and the more we forget our adoption, the less we will be aiming for that family likeness. You see, everything's all working together And again, it's working together in Christ because he is the son. He is the son of the father. He is the beloved son. He is the chosen one. He is the holy one. So that if I want to know what it looks like to be conformed to the image of the father, I look at the son. Because when we see the son, we see all of the Godhead in the flesh. Um... This is all very costly, too. There's nothing cheap about what God has done. There is nothing easy about this. You know, we look at these blessings and we think, wow, you know, how could God choose me? And and why would God bestow all of these blessings of grace on me? And, And it's easy to forget it's because Jesus would hang on the cross because we are undeserving and because we are so sinful and because we are so much unlike him and because we are not holy and without blame. We are full of unrighteousness. And so the son who who took together with the father in the covenant of redemption upon himself to say, yes, my father, I will redeem those that you have given me. Now listen to this. This is so important. I want to leave you with this. When you go to the Old Testament, the idea of blessing is pervasive. Remember when Aaron in number six held up his hands and he pronounced that blessing over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. That that is no cheap blessing. R.C. Sproul used to point out that in order for that blessing to be effective as it's pronounced on you, when Jesus hung on the cross, he had to hear the Lord curse you and hide his face from you. The Lord frown upon you. The Lord pour out his wrath upon you and give you unrest. That's, that's what this cost. For us to get these blessings, we do nothing. But Christ suffered more than we could ever imagine. Now, Paul would have you sing with him 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you know why he does this? And he says it throughout this section, to the praise of the glory of his grace. What does he want you to do? He wants you to praise him for the glory of his grace. What can you do? You can praise him for the glory of his grace. And you can live in light of these truths. Um, Chances are good by 11 o'clock tomorrow, we will forget half of what we heard today. And so I want to encourage you to be reading through this section of scripture, to be reading through the letter of Ephesians, and to be praying, Lord, teach me what it is to marvel at your grace. Make me to really understand what it means that you would choose me in Christ, not because of anything in me. Make me to pursue the holiness for which you chose me, and make me understand the blessing of being named as the very son or daughter of God. I hope that you'll be encouraged. If you are in Christ, this is all true for you. It's all yours freely by grace. And what God wants for you is to praise him for the glory of that grace. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are weak and we are forgetful. Lord, we have often forgotten the greatness of your grace. We have often forgotten the marvel that you would choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we have often forgotten that you have done that so that we would be holy. And Lord, we often live as orphans rather than children. And so our God, would you have mercy on us? Would you stir up our minds and hearts with these truths? Would you fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and make us to see the greatness of all that we have in him freely by your grace. Would you give us hearts that sing your praise? Would you loosen our tongues? Would you enlarge our hearts in the knowledge of Christ and the blessings we have in him? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.